The Water Values Podcast, Session 98. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, I'm Dave McGinsey. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we have John Fleck today. John's a fantastic interview. Uh, he does a great job. You'll really enjoy him. And I'll, I'll get into that a little in a, in a little bit. But before we do, I wanted just to say uh, thank you so much to KEF61 for the great rating and review on iTunes. Uh, he says, or she, she says, I don't know who it is, if it's a, a male or female, but he says, uh, I'm a water operator in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and have been looking for something to help him keep up to date on water issues, and the Water Values Podcast is it. Great podcast. Thanks so much, KEF61. Really appreciate that. Uh, thanks for spreading the word about the Water Values Podcast. And if you have been enjoying the podcast and haven't yet rated and reviewed it, please consider doing so on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever other uh, podcast directory you're listening to the show on. Well, as I indicated, John Fleck is here. He is uh, a fantastic interview. Uh, he does a great job talking with us about water in the West. He's a, a, a retired journalist. Um, he now is the director of the University of New Mexico's Water Resources Program. He wrote a book called Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. And so he, he really gives us a great perspective on water in the West. And 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 not only that, I think the message about water journalism uh, applies to the broader sense of journalism in general, and how important it is to have, how important it is for dem- for democracy, for a republican form of government, to have an educated citizenry. So that's really, I think, the bigger, the the really big message uh, to take away in, from a a non water perspective, just kind of a. Uh, a, a governance perspective, but also John, I think, has some really interesting ideas about how we've come to adapt and uh, collaborate about water in the West. And so, uh, without any further ado, open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, John, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time today. Could you uh, could you start off by giving us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? So I've been a journalist. Um, or I was a journalist um, for 30 years. Um, I started working in Southern California, um, writing for daily newspapers um, in Southern California. Um, and you know, Southern California is one of those places where, where um, water shapes the landscape and the politics and policies around water shape the landscape in really noticeable ways. Southern California was a place that was um, dry, didn't have much water of its own, and there's this sort of audacity of Los Angeles and the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California and the state of California, a place that had no water of its own. They built three giant artificial rivers over the first half of the um, first two-thirds of the 20th century. And so as a journalist sort of thinking about how water and the governance and the way we manage water changed that place that I grew up in and that, that I was doing journalism in, made me realize that water is the sort of fundamentally interesting story as a journalist, as a storyteller. And 
helping people understand, you know, my newspaper readers understand how their water works, really kind of mattered to sort of good civic outcomes and civic life. So I carried that with me from the very beginning. I covered as a young reporter for the Pasadena Star News back in the 1980s. We covered the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which is the wholesaler that serves um, water across Southern California. It's the largest municipal water agency in the country. Um, and so when I came to New Mexico in 1990, um, I kind of I brought my interest in water with me and covered a lot of other things here, but was always interested in the way water really shapes the landscape in this much more arid, much poorer place, um, both economically and in terms of the water supply. Um, and um, so sort of carried water with me all the way through my journalistic career, thinking all along, it's a great story. Yeah, and so that's, I, I find that very highly interesting, uh, especially living now in, um, the, in, in the Midwest where there are no water journalists per se. And, and so could you, could you expand a little about on why water journalism is, uh, is, a, is a thing out in the West and, and why it's important uh, for, for, you know, water to have journalists that write about it and, and educate folks about water? So um, journalism in general, let me sort of step back and talk a little bit about journalism. You know, I spent my career in newspaper journalism, the, the daily hurly-burly of newspaper journalism. I actually worked a little bit in radio, too. Um, so when I talk about journalism, I'm talking about a particular category, which is focused on a local regional audience. I've worked for regional newspapers my whole life. Um, and its intent is to help them, um, help readers understand their world um, in order that they can participate in their governance and make better decisions about their governance. <clears throat> I happen to think this is a, um, water is an issue that applies everywhere. Um, but it is more noticeable in an arid climate where scarcity is kind of always a pressing constraint and managing and dealing with scarcity um, as populations grow and the water supplies decline, especially you know in droughts, but also with you know with climate change further sh shrinking our water supplies, um, scarcity is really a dominant sort of feature of the culture. Um, so if you go to a place like Albuquerque or Phoenix, um, um, especially, you can see the the dry landscape around you, and there's this cultural awareness of the importance of aridity and the importance of, of managing your water supply to sort of protect yourself against aridity. So in these arid places, um, the institutions around water are really much larger and more robust because of the organization needed to manage your water. And so the journalism sort of follows along in doing that. I happen to think water journalism is important everywhere because there, everyone has issues around water. Um, but they're just more noticeable in the arid climate. So here in the West, um, it's changing now with the economics of newspapers and journalism changing. But in the West, you know, every regional newspaper up until five or ten years ago had someone on the water beat or something like the water beat, you know, covering the water agencies, covering the available supplies, covering the droughts, covering the cultural issues around water. Um, and it, it was also really important uh, beat at all these papers. Um, um, it's less so now because the economics are changing and um, newspapers are scaling back. The industry is shrinking, has shrunk dramatically. 
Um, and so, you know, I was the Waterbeat reporter at the Albuquerque Journal until a couple of years ago when I left and went to work on my book and moved over to academia. Um, but, um, um, you know, and, and the newspaper hasn't really replaced me with a Waterbeat reporter. So it's one of the gaps that's emerging as the newspaper industry shrinks. But it's always been really important to me to help people understand how their world works. So it, it's sort of obvious to cover the education beat of a newspaper in your state legislature and the police. Um, water is sometimes less obvious, but I think um, no less important. Yeah, and so that's a really interesting concept. Have you given much thought to uh, the ramifications of of the cutback of traditional journalism and how how you know you mentioned that the uh, the Albuquerque paper had not replaced you yet on the water beat, and so what are the ramifications of that from from kind of a water education and perspective? Well, it's, I mean, it's it's much broader than simply the water beat because I mean, it's not you know, it's not that they're not trying to do some water stories. They have a reporter who covers a bunch of things, and water is now part of what he covers a little bit at a time. Um, but without the resources to devote to develop specialization for a whole bunch of topics. So this doesn't just apply to water. This applies to a lot of topics. Um, you know, the public is less well-informed in the role of the mainstream news media in providing that sort of basic civic underpinning of information and public understanding is weakened across a whole range of, of topics. So, you know, obviously I'm obsessed with water and really saddened by the loss to public discourse about water um, um, as, as it shrinks. Um, but, um, um, you know, I think it's, it's much broader if you don't have a, a reporter who really has the time to become expert in education policy or healthcare policy, um, all of those things, you know, the public suffers because the, the news media is this, you know, independent information institution that if it's doing its job right is sort of respected and credible source that's an alternative to those who have a vested interest in particular outcomes. Right, right. So now, it makes me sad. It makes me sad about water, but it's a much broader problem than that. Oh, I, I, I agree with you completely. So you mentioned that you uh, you wrote a book. Uh, tell us a little about the book. So the, so the title of the book is Water for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. Um, published by Island Press. It came out September 1st. Um, and it grew out of my journalism. Um, um, I was covering water, you know, as I mentioned, off and on for the last, you know, 25 or more years, um, really close to 30 years now. Jeez, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I started covering water in Southern California in the 1980s um, at the time when Cadillac Desert came out, the great classic nonfiction book about water in the West by the journalist named Mark Reisner. Um, um, and Reisner, in his book, really eloquently chronicles some of the problems in the way we developed water here in the western United States, the way we overbuilt these dams and canal systems. Um, um, Reisner argues in a way that sort of was fundamentally politically corrupt um, and in a way that implicitly in Reisner's argument was essentially fundamentally unsustainable. <clears throat> and Reisner's narrative really has come to dominate a lot of the discourse about water here in the Western United States, the idea that we built cities and farms that are too large um, along a whole bunch of dimensions in a way that's unsustainable and 
you know, the narrative, and it grew out of Reisner, although if you read him carefully, he doesn't perhaps say this as clearly as some people think he says it, that, you know, we're sort of headed for a crash, sort of this apocalyptic narrative. And I really grew up in that narrative doing journalism, thinking that my job as a water reporter was to, to try to inform people about the impending problems and um, so that they could change their behaviors. And so one of the things that's problematic about journalism, you know, I've spoken in glowing terms about journalism, but, it, you know, it's not without its faults. And one of the biggest faults I've come to realize is that all the incentives in journalism um, are about pointing out problems. And the idea is you point out a problem to help people solve it. Um, and that fits really well with the apocalyptic narrative so that in sort of Western water journalism, there's this apocalyptic tradition, this, you know, the sort of classic picture that you see in the newspaper on news websites of the, the, um, the, the dry river bottom, the dry reservoir bottom with cracked mud. Um, you know, we joke about the cracked mud photo um, in journalism. And, and so what I'd spent a lot of my journalism time over, the, over the, the years since I left Southern California was sort of trying to chronicle that coming apocalypse. And what I started to notice in the, you know, mid-aughts, you know, 2005, 6, 7, um, as things were more and more serious here in New Mexico, um, is this counter-narrative, this um, um, notion that, um, you know, these examples of communities that, that, in fact, were adapting and changing their behavior and responding. And so rather than looking, you know, so, so as journalists, right, we swoop down on the town, that's run out of water. And I became really interested in the towns that didn't run out of water. And, and what did they do and how did they do that? And um, in, you know, by the, by the teens, it was really becoming clear that the apocalypse that we were all looking for wasn't happening and that sort of quietly there were a lot of people adapting to having less water and using less water. And um, I began to sort of pursue chronicling that story. You know, and frankly, from a journalistic perspective, it's not that sexy a story. I go into my editors in the morning and say, I've got a story today about a town running out of water. And they're like, get excited, and I'll put it on the front page, and we'll go down and take pictures and talk about the suffering and whatever. And that's real, and it happens. But if I go in in the morning with a story that says, hey, I'd like to write a story about a town not running out of water, it's like, yawn. <laughs> people don't, people don't um, respond to that in the same way, both editors and audiences. Um, but I became increasingly convinced that that, counter narrative of um, people actually quietly succeeding and using less water was a really important one. And that's kind of at the root of my book. My book is about the Colorado River Basin, which has a lot of problems right now. Our, you know, Lake Mead, the big reservoir that supplies water for Nevada, Southern Nevada, Las Vegas, um, Los Angeles, Phoenix, and a bunch of farms down there, um, is at its record low levels. So we have problems. But if you look at the the positive side, you're also seeing enormous conservation successes. You know, pretty much every major city in the Colorado River Basin is using less water, not just per capita, but actually conservation is such that even though populations, those populations are growing, they're using less water, um, total water. And if you look at the farm sector, see enormous sort of increases in productivity, even though the farmers are using less water. So you have this... Um, this sort of counter Cadillac desert narrative that says sort of quietly people are figuring this out. And, and I, you know, I, I realized as I was, you know, I, I'd always wanted to write the sequel, you know, sort of an arrogant thing. 
Cadillac Desert is a great book. Who am I? But I also wanted to kind of write the sequel to Cadillac Desert. Um, and, and I realized, you know, over the last five years or so that that sequel was, hey, things have changed since Reisner's book came out 30 years ago. It's a different world now. Um, what does that mean? What can we learn from these successes? And how can we scale them up and adapt them <clears throat> to the very difficult um, future we face? So it's a story about individual community success stories. And it's also a story about um, collaborative governance across the Colorado River Basin that sort of moved away from the old myth that waters were fighting over, which is the bait and switch in my title, waters were fighting over, and other myths. I mean, I think water may have once been for fighting over. I think that's become a myth now that far more often you see people conserving, collaborating, cooperating, and really being much more successful. And that's kind of the heart of the book. Yeah. And, and so it, it sounds like um, you've almost taken kind of a, um, oh, I'll call it a Malcolm Gladwell uh, kind of approach to this that you're kind of turning conventional wisdom on its on its ear. Um, I guess so. I never thought of myself in Gladwell's category. Wow, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I did, and it wasn't. It, it sort of wasn't intentional. I was I was trying to write my narrative. Um, I was trying to write my stories, and my editor at one point said, "Look, you know, every single time here, John, you're in order to get to what you think is true, you have to debunk an old myth. That's what your book's about." She was the one who noticed. But at every turn, I was trying to debunk myths in order to move forward in a different direction. And so that's what we made the book about. <laughs> yes. Emily yeah. Turner Davis, my editor, is very smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so real quick, could you tell us a little about, like, you know, uh, can you give us a kind of a concrete example of one of these myths that you kind of turned on its head? So, so the myth, um, one of the myths is the sort of notion that we're running out of water and that we're headed for an apocalypse. So here in Albuquerque, and this is the thing that finally convinced me of the new direction, um, Albuquerque is a community that um, we sit on the Rio Grande, um, um, not a big river by any standards, but it's, <laughs> you build a city around the river you've got, right? so that's our river. Um, and for most of its history, Albuquerque pumped groundwater to meet its municipal supplies. Um, in the mid-1990s, the community realized, the community listened to some scientists, which is interesting in and of itself. This doesn't always happen. Um, scientists from the U.S. Geological Survey and the city of Albuquerque and other, others convinced the city leaders that we were um, headed for trouble, that we were mining this aquifer in a way that was unsustainable, that we were headed for subsidence, that water costs, pumping costs were going up and water quality was going down, and we really needed to, um, to change the way we were doing business. So we did two things. Um, one of the things was we spent a significant amount of money, $500 million. That's a lot for a city of six, seven, eight hundred thousand people. $500 million to build a new water delivery system that would allow us to use imported Colorado River Basin water. So we're on the other side of the Continental Divide. So we move water through this Rube Goldberg system of tunnels and dams from the headwaters of the San Juan River, which is a big river, and we don't. there's not a whole lot of New Mexicans who live on it. Um, across the Continental Divide to where all the people are. We drop it down through the Chama River and the Rio Grande. And the north end of Albuquerque, we have a little diversion dam. We treat the water and, and deliver that to our customers. Um, so that allowed us to reduce our use of groundwater. We didn't stop using groundwater completely, but we substantially reduced it. Um, at the same time we were doing that, and that took a number of years, took more than a decade to build that system, we started a conservation program. And... It was education and policy changes, you know, policy changes like lawn buyback programs and toilet retrofit bonuses and 
<coughs> rebates and um, a lot of education, a lot of media. Um, and in Albuquerque, our per capita water use in the last 20 years has essentially been cut in half. And, and you know, we're still the same city. It's still a, a lovely city to live in. You know, it's not like we suffered in any way. So when you think about that, a modern American city, you know, per capita use of a major resource cutting in half, I mean, that's a pretty remarkable thing. Conservation is happening in general in cities across the United States. Ours is, <coughs> ours is one, of the, one of the biggest conservation um, successes. So we were conserving water, and that's a big piece of it. We were shifting away from groundwater pumping. So we're, you know, with that conservation, we're using the same amount of water as we were in the mid-1980s, and our population is way bigger. Um, so it's an enormous success. Um, and, you know, as a journalist and, and you know, looking for problems, because that was sort of our instinct was to solve problems by pointing them out. And when the problems are just sort of quietly being solved, you don't notice them as much. So I would, you know, get the monthly groundwater pumping reports and the per capita water use reports waiting for this to turn around and for us to start failing. And we never did. And finally, I realized that success is a really important thing. So, um, so Albuquerque, I think, is one of my favorite examples because it's a very personal thing to me. There's a groundwater monitoring well around the corner from my house. USGS, US Geological Survey maintains it. So you can log on the Internet and check it. So I do all the time. I'm kind of obsessed with it. The <laughs> groundwater beneath my house has risen 20 feet since we started doing this. I'm sorry, John, you, that kind of got garbled. That kind of got garbled. Could you just say that real quick again? What, how, what did the groundwater do in this, in this monitoring well? The groundwater in this monitoring well, the, the water table beneath my house has risen 20 feet. Okay, perfect. In the last, in less than 10 years. So, wow. So significant, significant groundwater um, rebound. And you see this across the city. It's not just my house. Um, I just happen to like it because it's by my house. Um, so it's enormous success. But, and so when I took that model and said, well, I wonder where else this is happening. You can look at places all over the West, and there are similar stories. Albuquerque is maybe one of the best stories, but there's similar stories all over the West. And it's not that we're not without problems. New Mexico still has some big water problems. Um, you know, Phoenix, the, the aquifers have stabilized in the Phoenix-Tucson area. They used to mine them like crazy. Um, you know, Las Vegas never had very good aquifers, so they kind of had no choice but to stop using them. But their aquifers have stabilized. Southern California used to mine groundwater, aquifers are stabilized. Um, you know, in all these cases, people in part did this with imported water from the Colorado River, right? So some people could argue, well, is that really sustainable? But, you know, that's the way we did it. We built cities in these dry places. You know, your alternative is not have cities anymore, and we're not going to do that. But given the constraint that we have these cities, the people in them have figured out how to do it well. And, you know, these are just these are success stories that we don't talk about as much because in journalism, we tend to try to solve problems by pointing out problems. And we're not as good at helping solve problems by pointing out what solutions have looked like and how they have worked so that other people can um, um, can learn from them. Yeah, that's a, a great perspective on that. And um, just kind of curious, have because at some point, per capita usage is going to reach a point where you can't really squeeze any more conservation out of it. Is there, are there, you know, how much room do you think is left? Um, because obviously the, you know, these cities in the West still want to grow. Right. So, so right. kind of how yeah. much, how much so, can we squeeze out of there? Well, so, so there's two parts to that question. I'll start with that question, but then I want to elaborate it and look at agriculture. Um, the answer to that question is we don't know, but 
if you look at the examples of um, places in the world, you know, developed world, rich countries that have confronted the kind of problems we have already that are way ahead of us on this, the answer is we can conserve a lot more than we currently are, even the most successful conservation examples in the West. So you look at places like Israel, you look at the, the big cities of Australia, um, you know, big cities of Australia during, you know, the big dry of the first 10 years of the 21st century and the cities of Israel, it's just like this is a really dry place. The per capita usage is a lot lower than ours. So those are both examples of when people are faced with, well, do I conserve more water or do I abandon my city? That's kind of a no-brainer. So people will, people will conserve a lot more water um, than we are now if they have to. Excellent um, point. Excellent. And yeah. And, but the second point is that given that, so, so that buys us many, many decades, arguably. Um, but we also here in the Western United States, we have to remember that, you know, depending on where you are, 60, 70, 80% of the human developed water, the water humans take out of the system to use is still in agriculture. And, and so when we, you know, when push comes to shove, if we're faced with abandoning our city or reducing our alfalfa acreage, you know, that's going to be a no-brainer, too, and we're going to reduce our alfalfa acreage and, you know, alfalfa, the food crop for cattle, um, not a super high-value crop um, per unit water used. Um, we will concentrate, and it can be grown lots of different places other than here. We will concentrate the agricultural water on the much more high-value crops, you know, the nut crops. People like to criticize almonds in California, but, you know, protein and nuts and, you know, fruits and vegetables. Um, and, and if we're smart about it, and this is one of the things I spent a lot of time in the book, if we're smart about it, we will do this in a way that respects and preserves the integrity of the agricultural communities. We won't just say, you're not going to farm here anymore, you're done. You know, the old buy and dry, which used to happen, especially has happened up in Colorado, and I think it's a really bad word now. There are ways in which cities can compensate farm communities can do business deals with them that will help keep the core of a farm community alive while they use, you know, money moves from cities to farm communities. Farm communities use less water and still are able to maintain their agricultural core. Um, you know, and farmers consistently, independent of scarcity, farmers consistently have been getting more and more efficient in their use of water. You know, the amount of crop per unit water, that's partly a business thing for farmers. So that, so that in addition to the ability of cities to conserve a lot, you have the ability of farms and cities, farms to conserve a lot and farms and cities in their relationship to conserve a lot more. So if we pursue those paths together, we have lots of room. You know, I don't know what the world's going to look like a century from now. You know, we don't know what, you know, there's a good chance that climate change will severely constrain the water resources. So it's hard to think about issues a century now in general. But, you know, for, for the foreseeable future, decades and decades and decades, we've got a lot of room to squeeze more. Um, you know, to, to increase the efficiency of the system and help keep these communities that, that we care about so much alive. Given your work in the Colorado River Basin um, and these great outcomes that have been achieved by primarily, you know, municipalities in that area of, of conserving water, you know, how, how have kind of, quote, river politics uh, and a strategy towards the river, how have that, how, how have those kind of impacted uh, the whole, you know, how water is used within the Colorado River Basin? 
So one of the things that's really that was really interesting to me as I was working on this book and runs counter to the old the myth of my title, Waters for Fighting Over, is the evolution, the development of these incredibly sophisticated um, institutional mechanisms for collaboration. So in the old days, litigation was one of the big drivers of the allocation and distribution of water. Either the actual litigation, you know, there's a whole bunch of lawsuits where Arizona sued California again and again and again. Um, the results of that litigation was not super helpful to anyone. It's a, it's a, you know, dangerous way to solve a problem by letting a judge make a decision rather than letting the people governing the water make their decision. And so we really shifted away this, you know, there's a trajectory that begins really clearly in the 1990s in Colorado River Basin of the states of the Colorado River Basin, the seven U.S. states, <clears throat> coming together and saying, look, we think litigation is not the best way. Let's come up with, let's negotiate deals instead. And, I mean, there's an interesting point. It's a guy named Matt Jenkins who writes for High Country News, you know, makes this point that litigation was always there in the background as kind of the threat. So you've got maybe a carrot and a stick. So people were afraid of litigation, and that caused them to negotiate. But if you talk to people now, um, you know, there's some serious issues still being negotiated and worked out with sort of next steps in collaborative agreement, you know, and nobody's threatening litigation. Everybody's acting as if they believe that a collaborative negotiated agreement is in everyone's best interest in figuring out how to reduce water use even further in the Colorado River Basin. So it's this evolution of a shift toward um, collaborative governance rather than governance through litigation and conflict. That's really the most important thing. Yeah. I mean, that echoes, I think, um, very closely. I John Ensminger is one of the first interviews I did on this podcast, and he kind of said the whole thing. Uh -huh. He said exactly what you said, right? was, look, we don't want— I learned all this stuff from— I'm sorry, go ahead. I learned all this stuff from John Ensminger, who's the head of the Southern Nevada Water Authority. He's, a, he's one of the people who, who taught me a lot of this, who got me thinking along this line. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, his, one of his big points was look, you know, we don't want a judge making the decision for us. Let's come up with something that we can all, yeah. all live with. Uh, and that was a big, yeah. so, you know, <clears throat> litigation is the, the threat of litigation as a tool for diplomacy is really, um, yeah. uh, that's, that's a, uh, obviously a big, uh, big issue. How is how have those politics changed? Do you think over? You know, I mean, you mentioned in the old days, Arizona used to sue and you know sue California, sue California, sue California, yeah. and, and it's. Are there any other changes uh, in the kind of the political landscape uh, that have affected how how the river how the river works, the river politics work? One of the most important changes is the growing importance of environmental values and constituencies. And we're still grappling in the Colorado River Basin with how to incorporate them into the discourse. But but you saw a real shift, especially in the mid-2000s in the Colorado River Basin, with the people in these negotiated frameworks trying to figure out how to um, bring environmentalists in, partly because of a fear of litigation threat, but partly because of a realization that, <clears throat> that their constituents um, had these environmental values. You know, you, you, you got to, especially in the state of Colorado, where I've been doing some work, over the last year, and, you know, environmentalists are at the table. It's a recognized part of the discussion. When you make a water management decision, environmentalists are in the room. Um, and so figuring out how to bring environmental constituencies, how to um, productively engage with NGOs, non-governmental organizations, these environmental groups, 
um, has been a really important piece of um, of the evolution of governance in the last um, you know ten or fifteen years. One of the other pieces that's um, important but hasn't happened as much or as well as it should is bringing indigenous communities, Native American tribes and pueblos. <clears throat> and we still haven't quite figured out how to do that. And that's a problem. And I think that's sort of the next, one of the next big issues is figuring out how to bring the native communities to the table in a, in a more um, equal sovereign way. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it was interesting. I was at the Taos Pueblo, um, a couple of years ago, I was there on New Year's Day, and I was talking to one of the the owners of a shop in there, and and they had just won a big water decision, and uh, yeah. and was trying to convince him to come on the podcast, and he said no. But in any event, <laughs> yeah. in any event, so yeah, uh, yeah. V- very interesting, uh, very interesting thoughts. So, John, you've been absolutely fantastic today. I I am so appreciative of the time you spent with us. I always I love learning uh, new stuff, and you've clearly brought a lot of new stuff to the table here. Uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you and your book and, and what you're doing now, uh, where can they go to find that information? So, so I have a blog, um, www.inkstain, I-N-K-S-T-A-I-N dot net slash fleck, um, where I write a lot about water and occasionally about other goofy things because it's my blog, so I can write about whatever <laughs> I want. Um, I'm a, a faculty member at, uh, and actually the director of the University of New Mexico Water Resources Program. So if anyone in your audience is uh, looking for to further their education, we have a great graduate program, master's degrees for water students. We teach interdisciplinary program in both the hydro sciences and law and policy. And given my background, a lot of communication skills, really important piece of that. And that's at wrp.unm. Edu, University of New Mexico Water Resources Program. And the book is Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. It's available from um, Island Press, and you can get it from your favorite local bookstore. Of course, you need to patronize your local bookstore. But if your local bookstore doesn't have it, you can find it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all the other sort of online book dealers. They have it, too. Fantastic. Thanks, so, thanks again, John. You've been absolutely fantastic. Really appreciate it. Thanks much. You bet. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with John Fleck. He was absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with him, learning a lot about how he has kind of deconstructed some of those myths about water in the West that he, that he wrote the book about. He was also very lively. I really, I really liked speaking with him. He was, he was just absolutely fantastic. Uh, In any event, uh, if you missed some of those links, weren't able to write them down, you're out and about when you're listening to this, I'll have the links at the show notes, which you can find at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 98. You can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. You can tweet at me or about the podcast. Uh, uh, you know, you can use my handle, which is at DTM one nine nine three. So thanks so much. Uh, if you have something to say about the podcast, if, if, if John's thoughts really moved you, please consider leaving a comment uh, again, thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 98. And uh, thanks so much for, for all of you who have been uh, listeners for all of you who have donated. I really appreciate it. It helps keep the lights on. You can uh, go to thewatervalues.com, hit the little uh, yellow donate button and uh, we'll take any denomination you've got. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. 
So one last thing before signing off, I'm going to be in San Diego at the P3 Water Summit uh, later this year on May 4th and 5th of 2017. Again, that's the P3 Water Summit, May 4th and 5th in San Diego, California. Uh, if you're going to be there, I uh, would love to meet up, hear what your water story is, and uh, just make another friend in the water industry. So um, let me know if you're going to be there. Shoot me an email, david, david at thewatervalues.com. That's david at thewatervalues.com. Uh, would love to hear from you. In closing, please consider keeping the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your day. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me thank you for tuning into the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice further this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.